Good morning. Uh, We're continuing our series this morning on the Holy Spirit, looking at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be part one. Um, There's just uh, such a long list to get through, and I didn't want to rush through it. Um, I think we would have just kind of machine gunned our way, as it were, through the different fruit of the Holy Spirit uh, if, if we try to get it all done in one session. So I want to spend some time looking at these uh, attributes, uh, these qualities, uh, as we see them first in God, and then how uh, our communion with God produces that, and how that will look at, look in our lives. But uh, before we get into it, let me open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, uh, to bless our time together this morning. Thank you. Father, for these dear saints who uh, are hungry for the word, it's a blessing to me. I I know that uh, you delight in that. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, show them Christ and you would uh, show us uh, all of your glory as we look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Lord, these are simply your qualities and characteristics uh, coming through us and what an honor it is. Uh, First, to experience these from you and see them in you, God, and then to be vessels of these things uh, to the world around us. So I pray, Lord, that your glory would fill the earth uh, through us and uh, that your your word would come and um, weigh on us, Lord, if we need to be convicted, I pray that you would do that. If we need to be encouraged and comforted, I pray that you would do that as well. Speak to each one of us and uh, use this time for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you've noticed the headlines over the past uh, few years, we could say past handful of years, uh, there have been uh, a number of uh, cries from the people to change legislation. Uh, in certain social directions. Um, There's been an attempt, and it's ongoing still today, to change society. Um, And we know that that comes from the evil one, but uh, the world doesn't understand that normally. They they think that what they're doing is virtuous and right and good. And it makes sense because Satan clothes himself uh, as an angel of light, when he is actually uh, the uh, the prince of darkness. Nonetheless, uh, the attempts to change society into a godless direction, uh, into a society that uh, wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with his uh, revelation in the word of God, nothing to do with his morality of right and wrong. Our society... Uh, is attempting to get as far away from that as possible. And uh, this is done through different ways. This is done through uh, media and entertainment. This is done uh, through uh, just personal relationships. This is done through education. But one of the key ways that this is done also is through legislation. Uh, the, The society around us is becoming more and more godless and uh, calling good evil and evil good. And 
The most effective way it can do that is through legislation. Um, there have been all kinds of laws and bills passed uh, and cases going to the Supreme Court that have to do with uh, equity or equality, whether it's racial or uh, based on gender, um, cases that have to do with, um, you know, whether somebody has to bake a cake for uh, a gay wedding, um, legislation that has to do uh, with transgenderism, homosexuality, uh, and everything else in society, abortion, of course. All of these different moral issues are being decided in the legislature. Now, the mindset of that is very man-centered. It's, it's actually, uh, we see that uh, in, the, in the New Testament. We see this kind of mindset, uh, especially in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, um, Paul is dealing with uh, some teachings in the church uh, that are saying that you must go back to Old Testament Judaism, to the Old Testament law. You must fulfill the Old Testament law in order to be accepted before God. And not only that, but uh, you know, you can have your Jesus, you can have your gospel, but if you really want to grow, if you really want to... Um, uh, not be like the Gentiles, not be like the godless society around us, then you have to really major on the law of God. That's really the foundation of your relationship with God. That's the essence of, of holiness. They thought that they can essentially legislate the heart of man. And that's ex exactly what we see today, with all of these uh, attempts to uh, change the morality of our society through legislation, uh, what's being done is uh, our society and those that are trying to steer it in, in a godless direction are trying to legislate the heart of man. The problem with this is the thinking that the only way to produce um, a good person is by making laws and rules for that person to follow. But what Paul shows in the, in the book of Galatians is that all law does is condemn us. And even the perfect law of God was only meant to bring us to the reality of our need for a savior. It was a tutor to train us in our sinfulness, uh, to train us uh, in, in understanding our sinfulness so that we can understand our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, uh, what I want to look at first, before we get into the specific fruit of the Holy Spirit, I want to show the, the, the importance of, 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 the Holy Spirit, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The importance and the essence of what are we aiming for here when we talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Are we aiming for just good people? Are we uh, just providing a different version of the Ten Commandments? Uh, what's happening here 
uh, in this passage. So the first point is the measure of holiness. The measure of holiness. Again, the problem in the Galatian church was that they thought that the only way to produce holy Christians was by making laws and rules for them to follow. They wrongly thought that a person's holiness was a foundation of one's relationship with God rather than the fruit of it. Let me say that again. They wrongly thought that a person's holiness was a foundation of one's relationship with God rather than the fruit of one's relationship with God. It's putting the cart before the horse. It's putting holiness as the foundation of of your relationship with God instead of the product or the fruit of your relationship with God. Which comes first? Which comes first? Uh, This is what Paul is defending. He's defending the gospel. Uh, a A few verses to illustrate this, to show this. Galatians 2.16, for example, says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So how is one declared righteous? How is one, de- one uh, declared perfect or good in the sight of God? Is it through law-keeping? No. He says, uh, you, you, uh, you are, are not justified. No flesh will be justified by the works of the law. It's impossible. Uh, Romans uh, 2 and 3 Explain this. Now, in a few verses later, he says in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, he says the same thing in a negative sense. He says, you know, if... If I am righteous by my law-keeping, then why is there the cross? Why Jesus? I mean, why did he have to die? I mean, he could have just gone and been a great example for us. I mean, isn't that what your average religious person might say? That's how they see God, is just a great role model, a great example of what it means to be a nice person, a good person. Well, then why did he have to die? If he was such a great model, why did his life end in what would be called failure in the eyes of the world? Why did he die if uh, all he was doing was giving you a good example? You see, the reality is that Christ didn't die just to give you a good example. He didn't live just to give you a, a good example. He lived a righteous life so that he would be the spotless lamb there on the cross, sacrificed for you. So he's saying here, if I can be righteous apart, excuse me, if I can be righteous through the law that is apart from Christ, then 
why do I need Christ? I can just be righteous on my own. If I can just be good enough, then why do, we need to go, why do I need to go to Jesus for my righteousness? You see the logic there? And this is the argument of Galatians. He's showing that, that look, Galatian saints, you cannot be righteous by your law-keeping. You cannot be good enough. That's the whole point of the gospel. And that's why Christ came. Instead of um, there being a, a blessing that comes from the law, apart from Christ, he says uh, that the law is a, is, uh, brings us a curse, its damnation, which is the fruit of the law. But praise God that in the gospel, it says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, Christ uh, redeemed us from the curse of the law. He bought us. He freed us. He liberated us from the curse of the law. That's what redemption is. Remember Exodus. Um, By the payment of a price, right? Um, the, the firstborn of all of Egypt, by that, by that death, as it were, uh, they were the, the people of Israel were released from this, their slavery to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And so also we, through the death of the ultimate firstborn, Jesus Christ, are released from our enslavement to sin. But not only to our enslavement to sin... Not only are, are we freed from our enslavement to sin, we are also freed from the curse of the law. You see, it's not simply uh, that uh, you're a sinner. It is that you are a sinner before a holy God who demands perfection and who will judge you according to his law. Christ frees you from that. Uh, he says in... Galatians 5, he says it outright. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's why he he came, to set us free from the curse of the law. Not just sin, yes, sin, but in connection to even the law of God. That is our inability to keep the law, and so we are enslaved to this. We are cursed, rather, by the law. Uh, Galatians 3.23-25 says, But before faith came, we were held in custody. So what Paul does here is he answers the question, well, if the law is so bad, if the law really could not produce righteousness, if we can't be righteous before God on our own by keeping the law, then why give us the law? And Paul answers that question. Before faith came, that is uh, faith in Christ, faith in the gospel, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. So we were in custody to our tutor. The law was our tutor, and we were, the Old Testament is. God's exhibit A, as it were, of uh, proof that we cannot be good enough for him. That we cannot keep his law. 
So the reason that the law was given uh, was to hold the people of God uh, in custody, to not let them go run rampant like the, like the uh, pagans did in the Old Testament, but to hold them in custody, and not only that, but to teach them something. What was the, what was the end? What was the telos? What was the goal of the lesson of the Ten Commandments, for example? It was, the, the, the culmination was unto Christ. See that? The law was our tutor unto Christ to bring us to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he says, well, then the outcome, the outcome of that in the next verse, now that faith has come, that is faith in Christ, faith in the gospel, then we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the Old Testament law as a means of gaining the favor of God. And again, because of that, that's why we're free. As Christians, we are free uh, from the curse of the law. Not free from the law necessarily, but free from the curse of the law. The Old Testament law is now a, a blessing to the church, a blessing to the Christian, because in it we see the nature and character and holiness of God. And what we see there in those things is what we emulate. Perfectly revealed in Christ, of course. Now the question here is, you have to imagine a church that has this movement in it that is trying to um, go in the direction of law-keeping, of, of what we would call legalism, right? Trying to earn the favor of God and earn the favor of one another by being good enough, right? That's legalism. Earning the favor of God and one another by being good enough. Now you can imagine a church that is heading in that direction, that is being swayed by this, uh, by this movement to go back to the law, to, to, to be all about works, all about rules, all about regulation. And into that mindset, into that church culture, Paul says, no, 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 no. You've been set free from the curse of the law. Why are you going back to the law? You can't be righteous by the law. You can't be good before God by the law or one another. Why are you trying to impress God or one another by being good enough? You can't. That's the whole point of the cross. And, he's, and into that mindset, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He set you free to be free. That's what he's saying. Why are you going back to the bondage and, and to the enslavement of the curse of the law? And the response to that would be something like, Paul, I understand what you're saying, but you know, we live in such a really bad society. The world around us is going crazy. Our children are being drawn to that pagan idolatry. Our uh, loved ones are, are leaving the church um, and, uh, you know, uh, finding themselves in all kinds of sin uh, the, it seems like the society, the society around us is seeping into the church. 
This is how we keep ourselves holy. We're just we're concerned for the holiness of the church. That's why we're doing all these all these things. That's why we're going back to the law. Yes, we're yes we have salvation in Christ, but 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 in order to keep us and in order for us to really maintain our holiness and 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 to be pure in order for us to uh, you know keep our children from going out into the world and 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 leaving the church you know we have to really emphasize the law you know, the, the response is well, what would you expect us to do paul would you just have us have no rules in the church, would you have us have no standards, no expectations of holiness? And Paul, as it were, responds to that because he he knows their he knows that that's what their response would be, something like that. And so he answers their question. He answers their their trouble with this in Galatians five sixteen to eighteen. But I say. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That is how holiness is produced. Walking by the Spirit of God. And he reasons with us. In verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. So he clarifies things here, doesn't he? You have the flesh and you have the spirit. You're worried about the flesh and, and the society coming into the church and influence the church. You're worried about your children or your loved ones being swayed by the, by the world around you. You're, you're worried about the, the flesh that's within you and you want to curb that flesh because you want holiness, yes, that's great. But you want to curb the flesh. And you think the only way to, to control the flesh is by law. And he clarifies things by saying, you know, there's really only two sides to this. It's the flesh and it's the spirit. It's the, it's the sinful impulses of fallen man on one side. And it's the holiness of God on the other. It, and, and the law is not a third option. It's not a third place you can go to. Uh, it's not a, another alternative to curb the flesh. The law was given to actually incite the flesh, Paul says in Romans 7. The law was given to show and to uh, uh, incite the flesh that's already within us. Have you, haven't you ever seen that in a child where you don't mention, you know, um, the whatever it might be, glass vase, uh, you know, on the table and, uh, and th maybe they're playing in the home and they're oblivious to that glass vase on the table. But as soon as you say, now look at that glass vase, don't touch that, right? As soon as you give the law, now all they can think about is the glass vase. Isn't that true? So it is with us. That's why that's the product of the law. That's how the law affects our flesh. Is it incites us to sin. Because of us. Not in anything wrong with the law. 
but because of us. Now, how do we curb that? How do we control that flesh? The only other alternative is God himself. Is walking by God, walking with God. Here, he says, walking by the Spirit. And he says, you know, the reality is, is you're concerned about this extreme. The other extreme is not the law. You're worried about the, the sinfulness of the flesh. The polar opposite of the sinfulness of the flesh is not the law of God. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself. So you want to combat your flesh? You go to the exact opposite of your sinful, fallen humanity. You go to God himself. And he says, these two things are in opposition to one another. Now, the trouble of the Christian life is that both of these things are present realities in the Christian. That is the flesh and the spirit. Fallen humanity and the Holy Spirit of God himself. Both of these things are present realities in the Christian. And what happens is, uh, within the believer, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And the Spirit within you sets uh, its desires against the flesh. There's this combat going on, as it were. And he says these are in opposition to one another. And the, the struggle, as Paul says it in Romans 7, is what's, what, what it says here. So that you do not do the things you want. Why is it, Christian, that you know you should read the Bible? You know you should pray. You know you should go to church. You know you should serve. You know you should give. You know you should forgive. You know you should be loving. You know that you should uh, not lie, but rather tell the truth. You know that you should speak truth instead of a lie. You know that you should give instead of steal. You, you know that you should not be angry, but rather love someone. We know these things, but we don't do them all the time, right? Isn't that our struggle? I know what I should do. Why don't I do them? Well, he says it's because the flesh is setting its desire against the spirit. There's this inner conflict within the believer between flesh and spirit. Now, Paul says the only way to curb that is not necessarily by just making more rules for yourself. There might be a place for that, but not on its own, only as an aid. How do you do the things you know you should do? He says, not law, but the next verse, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He says, by being led by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, if you, uh, and that's a loaded term, right? Walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit is 
Well, you can refer back to our lesson on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And how you promote the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. They're, they're synonymous ideas. Being led by the Spirit is walking by the Spirit, is being filled with the Spirit. It's living in harmony and communion and cooperation with the Spirit that's within you, Christian. That is how you are going to uh, do the things that you know you should do. That is how you're going to curb or control the sinful flesh within you. Is by walking in communion with God the Holy Spirit. And there's a number of ways you do that. It's by accessing this through the means of grace, right? As we talked about. The Word of God, prayer, fellowship, um, the sacraments, uh, suffering at times, meditation on the Word of God, uh, sitting under teaching and preaching. All of these things. Uh, will promote and uh, steer you into the direction of being filled or being led by the Spirit. Now, in this, this is the context, by the way. This is the context of our passage this morning. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. You can almost call all of that Introduction. But I, I wanted to set this up rightly so that we understand what we're doing. We're not just giving more law here. He says, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And notice there's this last phrase. Against such things, there is no law. Why does he say that? At the end of listing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's saying this. He brings up the law again to remind us. These are not more rules for you to follow. What, what you see here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control... These are the products of your communion with God, your relationship with Him on a personal level. These are not so much commands to love and be joyful and have peace and be patient and be kind and be good, be faithful, be gentle, uh, be self-controlled. Though the, Those commands are in the New Testament and we ought to obey them. But his emphasis here is not so much law-keeping as it is uh, the product of being face-to-face -face with the glory of Christ, fellowshipping with God, and walking by the Holy Spirit, walking with or in this ongoing communion and relationship with your God. These things, if you're walking with God, these things are going to start to come out like fruit on a vine. That's what he's saying. 
So what Paul is doing is he's giving an alternative to law-keeping in the church. So the question is, going back to the struggle of the Galatian church, how do we keep the church being pure? How do we keep from um, you know, children growing up in the church and then leaving? How do we keep uh, people in the church doing the right thing? How do we keep the church holy and pure? Is it by amassing all of these laws that you have to follow? Is it through legalism? Is it by, you know, how do we, uh, how do we keep um, men from lusting after women in the church? Is it by having somebody stand at the door with a measuring tape? Is that how it's done? To make sure that our, our ladies are dressed modestly and that, there's, that we curb our flesh through the modesty of women? Now, there's a place for modesty of wisdom. W- women, don't get me wrong. Uh, women ought not to dress immodestly. That's not a permit for you to go and uh, dress as if you're selling yourself. But how do we keep men being pure? It's not through a measuring stick at the door. It's by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How do we keep uh, husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands? Is it by creating some lists in the church where this is what you need to do? And uh, this is, you know, husbands, you need to act this way. You need to do these exact things. You need to work this many hours, make this much money, and uh, whatever else. Whatever kind of specific laws. Is that how it's done? No. It's by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's by a church that is full of people that are communing with God and coming face to face with Christ week after week. What will happen is the saints will begin to uh, uh, manifest these, these, this produce of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is nothing new in the New Testament. Getting at the, the heart of things, right? Isn't that our tendency as, as people uh, to, to be so concerned with the externals? Isn't that our concern so often? To be so concerned with how I look in front of other people? To be so concerned with how someone is acting or behaving? And that's a, a fault of us. And that fault, that faulty thinking, uh, is something that Jesus himself talked about. John 12. John 12, 33 to 35. Jesus was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. Oh, excuse me, I'm... John, Hmm. interesting, okay, that's not John 12, I don't know what passage that is, but 
nonetheless. Uh, let me read it for you here. I have it. Uh, John 12, 33 to 35 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. What is he talking about? Is he talking about agriculture? No. He goes on. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. See, the, the problem uh, with morality, the problem with uh, just looking at the outside is... Uh, what we'll produce, if all we're worried about is, is like the Galatians, just what we see on a Sunday or the rules that we keep, all we're really doing is, is we're stapling and duct taping fruit to a tree. It's the equivalent of, of, uh, of nailing you know, uh, apples to a tree and then calling it, well, look, it's an apple tree because I nailed apples to it. Is that how we know there's an apple tree? No, it's, it's what comes from the tree itself. And Christ says, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is good. What, excuse me, what is evil? Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The problem here is that everybody is born a bad tree. And we see that in evil fruit, in sin. The solution that God gives is not nailing apples to a bad tree or giving law to a sinner. The solution is that God must make you into a good tree. A tree that can bear good fruit for the glory of God. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is you uh, producing what God has already made within you. It, it, the fruit of the Spirit is you showing that you already are now, by the grace of God, a good tree. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's you showing what you are in Christ. It's you letting the Spirit of Christ live in and through you. It's not you trying to be good enough for God. It is not uh, making your holiness the foundation of your relationship with God, but rather your holiness is the fruit of your relationship with God. Uh, now, as we... Look at the fruit of the Spirit. We're probably going to look at just one uh, this morning. But a, a good quote from uh, Thomas Brooks says this about the fruit of the Spirit. Just to kind of get our, get our bearings, excuse me, to get our bearings. Now, he says, grace is called not the works of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying here in Galatians 5, we don't have the works of the Spirit because he just talked about the deeds of the flesh in the context of, of Galatians 5. He doesn't say, you know, instead of the deeds of the flesh, you have the deeds of the Spirit. 
No. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Thomas Brooks answers the question, why that imagery? Why fruit? Well, he gives three reasons. One, because all grace is derived from the Spirit is, excuse me, as the fruit is derived from the root. So he's saying that we call it fruit of the Spirit, or God calls it the fruit of the Spirit, one, to show that you're not the source necessarily, that the Christian isn't the ultimate source of these good things. Rather, the source is the Spirit, you being rooted in God, and that coming through you and manifesting itself through you in the fruit. So you can say it's, it's to keep us humble. <laughs> Second reason why it's called fruit, he says, is to note the pleasantness and the delightfulness of grace. For what is more pleasant and delightful than sweet and wholesome fruits? Yeah, I like that. He calls it fruit because uh, we like fruit. Fruit is enjoyable. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that we uh, gravitate towards. It, it's, it's the highlight of a meal. Maybe you have a, a, a meal and you end it with a piece of sweet fruit, whether it's a, a sweet, some sweet uh, grapes or strawberries or mango or whatever else it might be. It's, it's a delight. And so these, this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and, and, and so on, are to be delightful in the Christian's life. That is delightful to others, specifically. If you're uh, being filled with the Spirit, if you're walking by the Spirit, people are going to want to be around you, Christian. Because you'll be a delight to be around. Because you'll have these properties. Third reason why it's the fruit, why it's called the fruit, Thomas Brooks says, is to note the profit and advantage that redounds to them that have the Spirit. What is he saying here? Not only is it good and delightful for others to be around because they experience your fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit in you. But there's a profit and there's an advantage to you. A profit and a, there, there's benefit that redounds back to you. It's good to, uh, to be marked by love. It's, it would be good for you to be marked by joy and peace. Your life would go well if you are uh, exuding patience and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. Things would go better for you, you see. So all of these reasons why uh, it's called fruit. And Christian, uh, it, it, you should want to show this fruit to show the power of God living in your life in or, and to uh, be a delight and a blessing to others around you and so that you might benefit and thereby glorify Christ 
better in your, in your life. So, number two, the marks of holiness. The marks of holiness. Now we're just going to go through the list here, but we're going to go nice and slow. We're going to just we're just going to do love this morning. Love, probably the. I, I think there's a reason why it's first, right? It's it's the crowning jewel of the Christian character. It's uh, what's so delightful in God Himself, isn't it? But what is love, right? So just. Uh, a more maybe academic, you could say, slightly theological definition. To love, the word in its essence, is to have a warm regard for someone. To view them with eyes of affection. It is to have an interest in their good. To desire and work for their well-being. That's love. So, uh, I think our world just defines it by these first few words, a warm regard, right? They equate, I really like that person with I love them. And it's no more, there's no depth to it. And, and, and the, 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 the essence of the, the world's definition of love is, uh, I like what I can get out of you for now. You benefit me some way, uh, at least for now. That's the world's definition of love. But biblical love uh, really fills this out and, and ratchets it up, right? It, 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 it is, at its root, a warm regard for someone, but it, is, it, it begins to show itself first in how you view that person, how you see that person in, uh, in your life. You, you view them with the eyes of, of affection, there, are, are, there is a longing and a desire and a delight in that person. But it goes beyond that still to have an interest in their good. That you want good for them. That you want, because you delight in that person, you want only what's good for that person. That's love. But love goes even beyond that to Desire and then work for that person's well-being. That's where we see the fullness of this come out in the gospel, in the love of God for sinners. It doesn't stay just, you know, I, I wish that these sinners would do better. I wish these sinners could be with me and see my glory. and I wish I could be with them. It doesn't stop there. But God in his great love for us sent Christ. He did something about it, right? That's biblical love. It is to work for that person's well-being as well. So, uh, I mean, I, I can't say this without exhorting husbands. Husbands, this is what love should look like in your life. First, having a warm regard for your wife, then viewing them in a special way, in a way that you don't view other women or other things. And then it is to be interested in the good of your wife and, and to go beyond just wanting good for her, but desiring and working for her well-being. That's love. It's not words. You can't just point back to when you got married and when you said, I do, and say, well, see, that's proof. I love you. No, that's not good enough. You have to prove it day by day, men. 
This is how Christ does. Now, the where does love come from? What's the source of love? Well, of course, in God Himself. And we're going to be doing this on each for each fruit of the Spirit, for each aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to look at how this is first found in God, and then we're going to look at how then as a result of our being rooted and grounded in God and walking by the Spirit, walking with and communion with God, how this is going to look in your life as you are, you know, uh, as it were, absorbing these qualities from God and reflecting them out to, to the world around you. So the love of God here is found in a few passages. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is where the Lord, Yahweh, uh, showed his glory to Moses. Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That's uh, hesed, love. That's love, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then it goes on, who keeps loving kindness, there it is again, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Notice in verse 6 that he says, Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Here he is. He he gives this um, qualifier or this modifier to his love. It is an abounding love. It's an abounding love. And how is that shown? How is this abounding love shown? Well, he keeps loving kindness for thousands, right? But how is his truth shown? How does he abound in truth? Uh, by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but rather visiting uh, the iniquity of fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. But notice the difference between these two. Right? Here, uh, he abounds in loving kindness to thousands. That is, thousands upon thousands, multitudes, are recipients of the loving kindness, the love of God. But here he, he, he says, you know, my, my, my wrath, uh, the wrath of God is his strange work. It is a necessary quality of him. And here he says, you know, loving kindness, as it were, spills forth from my heart. To where it, it, it comes out uh, for thousands and thousands of people. But then when he talks about his justice, though it is eternal and perfect, and though there are more people that experience the justice and the wrath of God than that experience the loving kindness of God, the way he communicates this is, is just to the third and fourth generations. So he, he contrasts by number here, thousands versus three and four, three or four generations. He contrasts these two qualities 
uh, numerically to emphasize that he loves to, to dispense his loving kindness. He delights in loving sinners, loving his people. Where do we see this? In 1 John 4, 9, for example. How, do, how is the love of God manifested? By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. It comes out in action, doesn't it? Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What kind of love does our God have? It is an unconquerable love that he has for his people. It is is a love that can never be defeated, never be overcome by anything or anyone in this created world. Now, Nehemiah Rogers, he says, Naturally, we have no heat of love to God in our hearts. Our hearts are frozen and cold. But as iron put into the fire soon becomes red hot, so upon a due consideration of God's mercies toward us, our affections cannot but glow with heat and be much inflamed. Christian, don't you, don't you find that for your own heart? How easily it becomes cold towards God and towards others. How easily love is sometimes the first thing to go. The only way to be a loving person is by first looking at the love of God, Nehemiah Rogers says is to meditate, give due consideration, give it careful thought. When's the last time, Christian, that you just sat down uh, in your time in the Word and prayer, and you sat there and you just thought about God's love for you? You would do well to do that. And you'll, what you'll find is that you will begin to manifest the fruit of love. Now we'll see next week uh, that this love will show itself in a love for God and a love for others. And this is seen in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment, Jesus says. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets. So we'll see next week as we gaze upon and, and uh, as it were bask in the love of God, what's going to happen is you will first love God and then love others. you love your neighbor. Uh, and uh, we'll look at, we'll carry this format uh, through the rest of uh, this lesson, uh, we'll, we'll finish this next week. Uh, we'll carry this format of looking at these qualities in God and then looking at how when we commune with God, when we are close to God, these things come through and we'll look at what that will look like in your life. All right? Should be a really encouraging time 
as we look at these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for having mercy upon us. Thank you for, in your great, rich, merciful love, that you chose to come to each one of us and make us good trees to completely change who and what we are. You gave us new hearts, Lord. You gave us hearts that seek after you. You gave us hearts that love you and long for you and want to be with you. Oh God, may you be the delight of our hearts. As we look at these qualities, uh, these, this fruit of the Spirit, Lord, I, I pray that you would first draw our hearts towards you. And then as we are communing with you, God, I pray that we would show this fruit of the Holy Spirit. That it would show that we have been with God in these qualities. But Lord, it must first start with our relationship with you. And so I pray for your dear saints that they would this week take time just to think about how much you love them and to look up passages maybe and to see and meditate on all the ways that you show and prove your love for us as your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us a loving people as a result. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.